Yesterday, I promised to tell you a word that I never told you. Yes. I'm still not going to tell you. What? I'm still not going to tell you. Is that your imitation of my voice? Yeah. All boys in general. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad that I'm being stereotyped and not treated as an individual. <laughs> Your accent, you have an American accent. So do you. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't take that much effort. <laughs> exactly. Okay, moving on. Okay. The. So, just to recap. The idea that the, 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 the Torah has a integrity to it is seen, meaning integrity over the generation, seen because of the fact that there are institutions in place who are meant to preserve the Torah as a pass from generation to generation, right? That when people tell other people, that's considered hearsay, but institutions which are designed and have systems in place to hold them and to preserve the truth, they can pass on the truth from generation to generation. And that's the, the structure of how Judaism sees uh, its own integrity. And one of the downsides to that is that it becomes impersonal. An institution runs not on the strength of, of your firsthand experience, but on the fact that there are systems in place that ensure um, that things are done properly. And so the, the question is, how can there be a personal and individual connection to the truth of Judaism if the integrity of Judaism is found in the institutions? And yesterday we started discussing that that ability to have, sense the truth of Judaism for yourself, the way Chassidus explains that is an inherent quality in every Jew. Um, in other words, the truth of the Jew is that, the tru- is that a Jew senses the truth of Judaism. Now, what about the fact that people don't always experience that? Well, that goes back to the idea that the truth of something is not necessarily the thing that's always overt or experienced because other things can conceal it, block it, cover it over, um, or sometimes distort it, and, distort it and warp it. Okay. So, the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Um, I'm actually not going to give names at all, but I'm going to tell a story. A short story. It's a person that I knew. So this person grew up. Um, his family belonged to some sort of a conservative synagogue. And from a young age, he went looking for the one true religion. And the first religion that he knew was not, did not count as the one true religion would be Judaism. How do you discount Judaism? He grew up with it and it wasn't enough? No, he asked, we spoke to the rabbi, and the rabbi was very hedging in terms of whether God is real and what does God really mean, and how could we say that God wants anything, and how could we even know what God wanted if there was such a thing? And so it became very clear that if this is a person who represents Judaism as a religion, it's not the one true religion if the clergy can't even be sure that God exists or God wants anything. So Judaism was out. And then he moved on to college and he encountered Christianity. And um, the Christians on campus, they were not so um, hesitant in their claims. And so that at least, you know, at least someone who has convictions, plausible that they're claiming the one true religion. So he started exploring Christianity. Um, But he very quickly realized that most of the Christianity that he was encountering was, uh, couldn't be the one true religion because the, the, claims and beliefs were constantly being changed and updated based on whatever people felt was moral and appropriate. And clearly the one true religion would have to have some sort of like absoluteness to it that would obviously as morals and and, um, beliefs about what's appropriate change over time, elements of it are going to fall in and out of popularity and it's going to have to have some sort of like... uh, rigor to it and, and, and demand things that make us uncomfortable and you know the, 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 these groups on campus they, they just made Christianity sound too appealing to be the one true religion and then he discovered Catholicism like yeah that's a religion and he got really into Catholicism at which point his parents freaked out 
because you know it's one thing for your kid not to be observant; it's another thing for him to become a Catholic um, and a very serious Catholic. And they called an organization called Jews for Judaism, which is an anti-missionary organization. And um, a rabbi came and spoke to him, and they got to talking about religion and the Bible and scripture and all these types of things. And um, eventually, he left the whole thing. He left Catholicism and um, became a, I don't know, becoming, you're always a Jew, but he started practicing Orthodox Judaism, and he's now a Chabad rabbi somewhere out in the world. Now, what was the thing about Orthodox Judaism that made him convinced that this was the one true religion. Yeah. Consistency? Okay, but it's not like the Catholicism wasn't consistent. Did you say it changes all the time? Well, no, that's the other kinds of Christianity. Catholicism actually oh, you know, okay. is slightly different. No, the thing was that all of a sudden he encountered Jews for the first time in his life who said, no, 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 there really is such a thing as a God and God really wants you to do X and not to do Y. And all of a sudden, it sounded like the thing that he was looking for the whole time. That's why did he leave Judaism to begin with? The rabbi wasn't convinced there was God. He didn't encounter true Judaism. Oh, in other words, right. In, in other words, he knew what he was looking for. Right? In other words, he had a sense of what the truth is. And now he's trying to see, okay, is this thing called Judaism the thing that I have a sense of is the true religion? And then the Judaism as it was presented to him didn't match up. So I'm looking, 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 looking until full circle, or not full circle, but almost full circle, it comes back to Judaism that actually does match up. Which now you have to ask yourself, did he, is it that he discovered Orthodox Judaism later in life, or on some level he already knew what Orthodox Judaism was, he just didn't know that Orthodox Judaism was Orthodox Judaism. You see what I'm saying? Okay. And this story, by the way, is, is just, I like this particular story because it focuses on the religious aspect as opposed to God in the abstract. But this is the same story we have with Avraham. Avraham, the first Jew, as the story in the Medrash goes, discovered God. Anyone know how he discovered God? Process of elimination. Process of elimination. What do you mean? Uh, there's like a story that he thought it was the sun and then it wasn't the sun. He thought what was the sun? Uh, oh, you're saying how did he know that it was a concept of an all-powerful thing? So he already had a sense of God. He had a sense that there has to be some all-powerful thing. Yeah. And then he went looking for God, mm-hmm. and then he thought the sun might be God. Why do you think the sun might be God? Anyone know why he thought the sun might be God? Because he passed the earth. Because his father told him. And then he worshipped the sun. And what did he realize? That the sun... It went the down. moon comes up. Right. The, the sun sets. The sun can't be God. Which means, strangely, he already knew what God was before he knew what God was. I mean, he knew what the qualifications, he knew what the characteristics of God were, he just hadn't found someone who met those. Right, right. And that's what I was saying, that there is this, so, now, where did he get that sense of what God is? Now, you think, okay, well, you know, he spent some time thinking about the nature of reality and contemplating, okay? Except at what point did he discover that the sun was not God, according to Jewish tradition? Well, actually, at what point did he discover that any physical object couldn't be God? Not just the sun. The sun, the moon, the stars, trees, animals, plants. Age of three. By the age of three, he figured that out. Was he a more developed mind than we are? Yes, he was a more developed mind than we are. Refer back to the class about uh, Rivka getting married at age three. Um, But at what point? This is at what point did Avram have a fully developed theology that he could actually teach and explain to other people? No. 70. According to Rambam, 40. Wow, I'm really on it. <laughs> you want to go, go three for three? <laughs> how, old, how, old, how old was Avram when he had his first prophetic experience? Ooh. Very good, 70. Okay, so let's just run through the timeline here. By age three, he's convinced that if you can see it with your senses, if you can experience it with your physical senses, it's not God. But it takes him until 40 to he has a well-developed theology he can actually really teach and explain to other people rigorously. And then it takes till the age of 70 before he actually has a prophecy. 
So what I want to ask is, well, how does this whole process start? It culminates with prophecy. Actually, then there's, there's levels of his prophecy. Um, and in fact, the Torah begins the story when he receives his first prophecy. Or maybe his second prophecy, depending on which commentary you read, but we won't get into that. How does the whole process start? What, what was in Avraham's mind, what was motivating, driving him, that brought him to the place that by the age of three he realized that if you can experience it with your physical senses, it's not God? Right, he had this innate sense of God. And that's actually why I keep saying God and not all-powerful being. Because all-powerful being means you have to have some concept of power, right? So if you're starting out with a, with a, with a, a, a concept, then you should already have something to explain. So the, the interesting thing with Avram is that this sense of God comes first. The rejection of any physical thing as God comes second. The ability to conceptualize God in a way that you can then articulate it to others comes third. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's not that he starts out like some sort of philosopher with, okay, well, stuff exists, so there must be a cause that makes it, and we'll call that cause God, and then we'll go look and see. What, no, he's, he's not engaged, in, at least initially, in some kind of philosophizing. There's something much more experiential going on, something that's much more, for lack of words, primal. So when I was a kid, I had two books. No, two <laughs> books that are relevant to this class. My father had a rule, which is I could only take out 20 books from the library. 20. 20. Yeah. At, at a time? time? How many yes, times? Yes, at a time. How um, good rule. <laughs> the library didn't have such a rule, but he did. <laughs> um, anyway. No, I had more than two books. How did you read 20 books? <laughs> anyway. Um, so I had lots and lots of books. The... So I had two books. One book... One book was called A Little Boy Named Avraham. Ah. Oh, I've heard of that book. Now, it is a very important book of Jewish theology. The story basically goes like this. There's once a little boy named Avraham, and he lived in a cave. There's a backstory as to why he lives in a cave. We won't get into it right now. But he lived in a cave. And one day he went go look, looking for Hashem. This is very important. He's looking for Hashem. Asterisks. There's literally an asterisk in the book. And then on the bottom, it says the creator of the universe. And this is very important because although we understand that Hashem is the creator of the universe, Hashem is actually just the word that means the name as a reference to God. Okay. Now, why am, I, why am I pointing this out? Because, going back to the story, that he wasn't thinking in some sort of deep abstract notion. There is a world and a creator. Okay. That there is this, there's this sense of there's this... There's God. The fact that God creates the world is, is some aspect of what it means to be God, but there's something more than that. So he's looking for, going out to look for God, or as Jews say, Hashem. And then he sees the sun. He's like, son, are you Hashem? And he watches the sun all day. And in Hasidic tradition, he actually says that he worshipped the sun um, with his full heart and soul. But in the book, it just says he watched the sun. And then the sun sets. And he concludes that the sun can't be Hashem because Hashem never leaves. So then he thinks maybe the moon is Hashem. And very quickly he runs through the sun, the moon, the, the, you know, you flip through pages, and everything he realizes that's not Hashem, and that's not Hashem, and that's not Hashem. And what does he conclude at the end of the book? At the age of three? Well, Hashem is Hashem. Hashem is the one who makes the trees grow by That's day. right. All he's concluded is that Hashem made everything else, which is very important, right? This, there's a lot of depth in this book. I don't know if the author appreciated the profundity of the book, but his conclusion at the end of the day is that it is, is all he's concluded is that all these things aren't Hashem and Hashem made all these things. But has he figured out who Hashem is? No. No, he's only figured out who Hashem isn't and his relationship Hashem has with everything else. Which, by the way, means he wasn't originally looking for the creator of all the things, right? The creator of all the things is the thing he concludes. I thought we can't, round, we can't understand Hashem by understanding what he isn't. That's getting way too Kabbalistic right now. We're just saying that he, we're just saying that he just saying he realized that the sun is not Hashem, okay. right? Even everyone will agree the sun is not Hashem. Okay. Now does that get you closer to knowing what Hashem is? You know it's not Hashem. And then from there you get the first basic notions that Hashem is the transcendent creator of all the things, the one who makes the sun shine and the and the trees grow and blah blah blah. Okay, so that was one book. Okay. There's actually a few books in that series, but that was the most important <laughs> theological book. Of the three. Right. 
Then there was another book, which I do not remember the title, but I think the title was Are You My Mother? Yeah. That's the title of the book? Yes. About the little bird? Yes. So there's a little bird. What? I talk about it all the time. <laughs> oh, you always bring up how do you know who your mother is? Are you my mother? Nora's like hoping. How can you trust? So I will explain the book. Are you my mother? Are you my mother? Basically, follows the story of a bird who, if I remember correctly, falls out of the nest, and then goes around trying to find its mother. And so encounters a bunch of different animals along the way, and the question is, are you my mother? And can ever, and you know, eventually comes, you know, goes to this animal, that animal, I don't remember all the different things, and discovers that none of these could really be their mother, even though initially the, the bird is quite drawn to them as their mother, and then eventually discovers, I don't know if it's a he or a she in the book. It's just a bird. As a bird, okay. Well, the bird finds its mother. Okay. Now, what's interesting in these two things is that both the bird and Avram knew what they were looking for before they knew if this is the, before they knew if this is the thing that they're looking for, right? They know Avram's looking for Hashem, and when the sun sets, he's like, okay, that wasn't what I was looking for. But he still doesn't know what Hashem is, he just knows the sun isn't it. And the baby bird is looking for its mother, and when it encounters whatever animal it does, and eventually there is some kind of a, an awareness that this can't be my mother. I forgot the details of that book. Um, but at somewhere in my young mind, these two books kind of seem to be saying a similar idea. Yes? Uh, could that be related to the court case in the U.S. Um, where the judge basically said, I know it, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it? It is a similar thing, yes. So this idea, there is a sense of something, and I cannot be fooled. In other words, if I look long enough, I can tell you if this is the thing or this isn't the thing. But if you now ask me in the abstract to define and explain it, I can't. That is an interesting kind of a sense, okay? That's a sense that, by the way, little children have of their parents, okay? So my, my, I have a two-year-old. His name is not Meir Chaim. What's his name? His name is Yankel. <laughs> That's a nickname. Anyway, so he is very, he is, he is, he is very insistent that I am his father. Okay. That's good. Sure. What? You're not as sure. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. This, is, this is actually what I want to get to. And now, what does that mean? No, what, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? So let's embody the world of the two-year-old for a second. The world of the two-year-old is, is that I am Tati. That's Yiddish for father. So I'm Tati. Now, when I come home, Tati has come home. When Tati has come home, that means reality is now different because now Tati is home. Now, um, if my hat is lying around somewhere, well, this is Tati's hat, and so he must take it and bring it to Tati because Tati's hat belongs on Tati. Tati's head, right? Um, if, he, if, if my jacket is somewhere, if my, any of my I, I things are anywhere, um, they have to come back to me because I am Tati, right? Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a significance to me being Tati. Now, what's also very interesting is that he's very much aware that I am Tati to him. I am not Tati to the whole world. Aww. That's unlike most. Does he get this? That's actually no. Most, no, two. no, most two year olds are like like he he ha- is very clear that. Yeah. What about with his siblings? <laughs> what? What about with his siblings? <laughs> not, as not as much. He doesn't have that same kind of thing. And so there's there's for lack of words there is this. There is this significance and very distinct role that I play in his mind. Now, I think we'll understand that if we ask him to articulate what is, first off, what is the significance? What is this role? What are you, what are you, what are you, what are you associating with this name and this person that, that carries so much weight in your little two-year-old mind? I think we all understand that he could not articulate that to himself, right? Certainly has no understanding of the idea of conceiving a child, what makes me his father, right? That's completely beyond. So he has this sense of me being his father in some very raw, primal sense. Okay, that's part of an innate part of his psyche. And um, he is projected onto the right person. Although that can sometimes happen, the person projects it onto the wrong person, right? So that sense of having a father or having a mother, that's an innate um, and hopefully, if everything goes right, it gets put onto the wrong person, put onto the right person, 
Okay. Although in the case of Avraham and the bird, their innate senses got initially projected onto the wrong entities, and it was a process of, as you put it, eliminating that these are not the right things. But the interesting thing is, at the end of that process, it's not then that Avraham or the bird had some greater, deeper, profound understanding of what it means to have, what it means that there's a mother, what it means that there's a god. That's a different process. It's simply that my innate sense is 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 not is being projected onto the right entity, that my innate sense of, you know, that this is my mother is in fact my mother, and innate sense that this is, that this is God is, is not directed at anything which isn't God. Okay, yes? So, I mean, I feel like this is a common thing, I would say I know what's like, but just like walk, being in the grocery store as a little kid and like running up to some man and like hugging him and then being like, you're not my dad! <laughs> yes, that happened to me in Shul once. I ran up to someone who was not my father because, you know, all Lubavitchers wearing the kapata and the oh, yeah, talus. And I ran up to him and grabbed me and turned around. It was not my father. And that was, that was traumatic. Because, like, your mind, like, like, has, like, resets or something. It's like, yes. Right. That, that. So, so this intrinsic sense that we spoke about yesterday, it is not that you know and understand what, you know, any sort of theological religious principles. It's this kind of a thing, the same thing that drives the bird, the baby bird in the book to look for its mother, the same thing that creates the, the, the innate affinity to father figures and mother figures, which hopefully are your actual father and mother, um, is also what drove Avraham to look for God. And that kind of an awareness is preconceptual. There's no, there's no concept or definition associated with it. The only thing is that you can realize that, you've, that, that it's being misprojected. You can eventually realize that this sense of whatever I have a sense of doesn't belong in relationship to the sun or in relationship to, in the case of this other person who I started the class with, doesn't, it, it doesn't fit with Christianity. It fits with Judaism. But that's something a person has to actually experience. So there's this innate sense which makes them um, aware and possibly driven. But figuring out what matches that sense is actually a process of the own person's own personal journey, own personal experience. And it's not that they're working with, an, with, 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 with a priori criteria, a checklist that they can work. They actually have to make mistakes along the way. Now. Some of those mistakes can be very drastic. So we'll use an example. There is a famous statement of Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Anavi, um, where he tells the Jewish people that they should either worship God or worship the idol Baal. Baal is a very popular idol back in uh, biblical times. And the Jewish people, they worship God, they worship Baal, they worship a bunch of things. They were very uh, multicultural, the Jewish people, first temple times. And so at one point he rebukes them and says, either worship God or worship Baal. Um, well, since most cultures throughout most of human history, the culture and religion are easily blend into each other, being, being multicultural, you were very... You know, in fact, the accusation of Haman in the Purim story was that the Jews were not multicultural. They didn't participate in the larger culture. Now, when you have secular societies, that becomes a more interesting question. But remember that throughout the vast majority of human history up till around, say, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, depending on which part of the world you're talking about, culture and religion were easily mixed together. They weren't so easy to separate. So if you're going to avoid another religion, you're also stepping outside of the culture. How that applies to modern times will be for a different discussion. That's the whole thing also. Yeah. I mean, the obvious reason why, why Antiochus would want to wipe out Judaism um, was because of the element of trying to create a more cohesive way of governing his, uh, his uh, what do you call it, his empire. Same with the Romans. The Romans' problem with Judaism was that the Jews, with the Jews' religion kept them isolated and separate from the rest of the uh, empire and gave them a nationalistic streak they didn't like. So, yeah, okay. Anyway, so why would prophet of God tell the Jewish people to worship an idol? He was 
that's why he told them to worship an idol? No, he said pick one because he's going to prove it. Well, he did the proofing either way. He says, he says, how long are you going to go back and forth? Either worship God or worship Bob, but like, don't do both. Why, why would that make any sense? So there's an interesting concept in mathematics, which is called proof by contradiction. Has anyone ever heard of this concept called proof by contradiction? Okay. Proof by contradiction, which is basically what allows mathematics to do all the really cool stuff, is you assume something that you're pretty sure is false, but assume that it's true, and then you draw a bunch of logical conclusions from this thing until you realize that those, those logical conclusions contradict each other or create paradoxes. And if the logical conclusions of something are false, then the initial thing must also be false. So assume it's true, show that what, it's, what, what follows from it can't be true, so therefore it itself can't be true. So if you go worship Baal and you have this innate sense of God, what will eventually happen long term? Is that going to line up well? No. No. Could it last for a while? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you want to find out that God is the one true God and his, Judaism is the one true religion, one way to do that is throw yourself headlong into... Every other religion. No, not every other religion. That's not going to work. You need to pick one. Because yeah. you want to... Be, and the reason why... <laughs> the reason why is... The, 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 if you're throwing yourself into a bunch of stuff, you're not going too deep into any of them. Right? The, the, the inconsistency between the innate sense and what the person and, and what's going on happens the deeper a person gets into something, the more familiar they are, right? Going back to Avram, right? When he initially looked at the sun, it could pass for God. It's only after appreciating it more and more and reflecting more and more and seeing it set, then he came to the realization this is not it. So if you have a casual or superficial relationship with a bunch of stuff, it's very hard to figure out whether things match up with this intrinsic sense or not. So you basically could throw yourself headlong into something completely false, and eventually, if you don't die first, I mean, people, sometimes this process could take 200 years for a particular person. Sometimes it takes five years. But the, the, the end result would be the inconsistency between their intrinsic sense of God and God's wisdom and God's truth and what this um, belief system practices would, would eventually become apparent and the, and the person would would not necessarily become a religious practicing Jew, but at least the truth would become clear to them. Um, this, this is how Chassidus would explain the, the phenomenon of many people who are, are Jewish who become devout Christians and um, sometimes even get quite high up in the church and eventually in their old age start going back to like privately putting on tefillin and things like that. Because at some point there's some kind of inconsistency that they can't for themselves doesn't line up perfectly, but they're already too far invested. So on a personal, intimate level, that kind of truth becomes apparent. Whether a person makes the full lifestyle change, that's another discussion. And then the other way is you could just throw yourself headlong into the right thing. And so everything lines up. But the idea here is that the sense of truth is already there. The question is, is, is it being projected onto the right thing? And the more casual, the more superficial, the more inconsistent a person's life choices are, the harder it is for them to be sensitive to that. But the more they take this part of them very seriously and really devote themselves, the more they're going to, the quicker they're going to have the sense of this lines up or this doesn't line up, this resonates or this doesn't resonate. Now, so one thing that um, we never know about this sense is that consistency in how the person lives their life kind of hones that, this awareness. Okay, so now I'm going to tell you the meaning of the word, or the, the name of the word. The word, what I'm talking about is called the muna, for those of you who haven't guessed yet. In Hebrew, it's called the muna. Now, why did I not, why didn't I just tell you that at the beginning? Because I wanted to explain that. Also, because I wanted to translate the word amuna. Okay, so we're first going to translate it the way the Zohar translates amuna. Okay? Now, the Zohar is a cryptic book, okay? So... The Zohar says, he is truth and she is Amuna. Is that it? He is truth. Is that a capital T? Amuna. I don't know. There's no capital letters in Hebrew. It certainly makes a difference. It, it does, but we're going to try to figure this. He is truth, or he is MS, and she is Amuna. Well, if that's the only information I have to go on, what would that tell me that Amuna is? 
if he is a muna and she, if he is truth and she is a muna. I don't know what this word a muna means, but I know is that if I compare a muna to the truth, the relationship is that truth would be male and a muna would be female. So what does that tell me that the muna is? Well, it's not truth. Okay, that's good. What else? Yeah. Well, okay, yeah, but but let's let's just focus more on on just the the, the, the analogy of male and female and itself. You're right. It's then going to carry over to that that's that that parallels Hashem and the Jewish people. Yes. Males give and females receive. Males give, females receive. Okay, so then that's so. What does that mean? A moon is complementary to truth, and what does it receive? Truth. Okay. Now, are according to the way the Torah understands men and women, are men and women supposed to, not men and women in general, but a particular man and a particular woman, are they supposed to live separate, independent existences? No. No. How are they supposed to exist? Together. Together, right? Okay. So then, the... Where should the where should the truth be found? In the amuna, right? That the that the, the, the just like a, a husband and wife should supposed to live together, right? Amuna and truth are supposed to be together. Okay, so amuna is the kind of thing that can receive and unite with the truth. In that sense, it's kind of like a truth sensor. It senses the truth of things. Now, this is a little bit weird because we don't, because we don't, and this is something we ended the class yesterday, we don't really think of, of, a, of us having a truth sensor. We think of, of figuring out if something is true by looking for consistency or inconsistency. So going back to you know, what I said yesterday about the, the, the um, traffic lights, if you're colorblind, you can't see the red versus the green, you, but you can infer that this is red and this is green based on the location. When I see something is inconsistent, I can infer that it's lacking in truth. When I see something consistent, something is consistent, I can infer that there's a possibility or probability of truth there, right? But I'm not directly experiencing the truth of the matter. If truth means something that is intrinsically the case, like how do, through analysis, through observation, do I tell if something is intrinsic or not? Right? It was the question we had yesterday. How do you empirically come to that realization? And you can't. But what it's describing, what the Zohar is saying is that Imunna is female to truth being male, that they belong together is just like sight directly picks up color and hearing directly picks up sound. What does a muna directly pick up on? Truth. Truth. Now, why therefore would I not like to use just, just this one aspect of it? Why would I not like to use the word belief then as translating a muna? People believe things that are untrue, right? In fact, we often use the word belief for things that people are not sure that they're true, right? The way we often in modern English use the word belief is kind of really the opposite of emuna. In fact, when the Rambam translates the Arabic word that he, and explains what that Arabic word is for what he thinks, what he understands emuna to be, he says that real emuna is something that it, it, it is, it, 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 the person has a sense that this, that something is true and it could not be untrue. It's so absolute. So th- this kind of a sense is saying that, you know, for lack of borrowing the pun, you have a sixth sense. You have a sense of the truth of things. Now, what else do we know about men and women? So according to Torah, why do men and women belong together? Halves of a whole. They're halves of a whole. They originally were one. So then what does that tell us about Amuna and Emes, about Amuna and truth? Why do they fit together? Why, do they Why is Amuna sense the truth? Because originally Amuna and truth are actually two halves of a whole, right? And this is the idea that the reason why a Jew has this Amuna is because a Jew has a godly soul. God is true. So the, tr- the godliness in you senses the godliness in the Torah or the the. And that godliness in you sensing is called the Muna, and the godliness you're picking up on is called the Emes. But godliness is sensitive to godliness. Um, and that idea that, that, that the Muna 
senses the truth and belongs to the truth and picks up on the truth parallels the idea that men and women belong together because men and women religion created as two aspects of one whole. There's a godly aspect to the Jew. There's a godly aspect to the Torah. The godliness in the Jew senses the godliness in the Torah. And that's what we call Emuna. That's, that's, this, that's this intrinsic quality. And the first person who, who we know experienced that in a powerful way that really changed how they lived their life would be whom? Avraham. Avraham was the person who was, had, had a godly soul that so directly impacted how they lived their life that their sense of... The, the godliness themselves, sensing that there's godliness in reality, what is what drove his search for God. Adam? Adam, no, because Adam was actually created whole. Adam, Adam never went through a process of development. Just like Adam was never physically developed, he also never psychologically developed. Noah, no, Noah was, uh, Noah was, 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 he was raised and educated and had his, you know, he, he, he was not driven by this sense at all. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't have it. He did. But, but like, like, like if you meet your average religious Jew, you know, and you say like, okay, your awareness of God and Torah mitzvahs, like how much of that is because of this intrinsic sense of the truth of the Torah that's driving you? And how much of that is because of who you, who you, you know, where you went to school and what you've been educated with and the culture you're around, like that, that also plays a role, right? But Avram, the culture that he was raised in was completely antithetical to godliness. And his rejection of all of that was because the, the sense, the godliness in himself, was seeking out the godliness of God. And, and, and when everything that was purporting to be God, everything that was purporting to be holy, and wasn't, he said, well, to borrow the Supreme Court thing, I know it when I see it, and this isn't it. And eventually, by the age of three, he realized, if I can see it, hear it, taste it, touch it, it's not what I'm looking for. By age 40, he could articulate that what I'm looking for is conceptually transcendent and explain that to other people. And by age 70, he actually had a direct encounter with it. He had his first prophetic experience. And that's a very, not only is that very unique, the Medrash tells us that is unique, that no other person actually had a life that was driven entirely by Amuna. Every other person, as much as there is Amuna, there's other people supporting and helping and influencing, teaching and guiding. Avram was the only person who Amuna was that much of a dominant force in his life that it drove his whole life. In the Torah or of all? Of all humanity. Yeah. Do we have Amuna in causality? So, we have something, we, so, 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 if Emuna and Emes go together, so then there's Emes in the most absolute sense, like some, which would be God. But then there's things that are Emes in a relative sense, that you know, within how the world works, causality is the way the world works. And so in that sense, all human beings have Emuna about certain things. And causality would be one of them. Um, gravity? No, not gravity. Gravity, no. Causality, um, the value of life, A few other things like that. Very fundamental things. But the thing is, a godly being actually has a moon in the absolute truth of God. But the, thing, the fact that something, when you drop it, will fall down, that's not, that's not causality? N- no, it's causality plus experience. Okay. You're saying we don't have an innate sense as babies that things will fall until we have the experiences. That's why babies drop things. For the sake of the experience, you mean? Yeah, and that's why babies also is an interesting thing where they learn that things drop, but they haven't learned that they drop. There's an interesting stage where they find dropping things very interesting, but they still haven't realized that, like, you know, they can fall. <laughs> it applies to them as well. Which, by the way, parallels the thing that a lot of us realize is that we learn stuff about the world and we're okay with it applying to everything other than ourselves, but it's a whole other realization applies to me too. It's like certain things are dangerous, unless I'm the one doing it. Okay. So maybe babies are inherently hypocritical. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So that's one thing about Amuna. Another thing is that Amuna is actually related to the word for practice or regular practice in the sense like, you know, um, where, you, where you have to do something repeatedly, regularly in order for it to be um, effective. So like if a person doesn't practice um, piano, will they be able to play piano? What if you used to be able to play the piano and you stopped practicing? Do you want to 
You won't play it as well, right? Here's an interesting little thing. Which doctors are better at reading um, EKGs? Doctors who have been practicing medicine for a long time or practicing medicine for a short period of time? Sure. Why? What? If they've been practicing for a long time, they're less likely to be trained in more modern things. Reading an AKG is not like... They pay less attention. They pay less attention. The, the, the funny thing is that, that the word practice here is actually misleading. They actually haven't been practicing medicine for such a long time. Because if you're practicing, think about when you practice, like say, a piano, right? If you're practicing playing piano or any instrument and you make a mistake, what do you do? Right, you correct. Now, either you're good enough to self-correct, right? Some people are good enough to self-correct, or you need a tutor to correct you, right? But if, if there's no correcting happening while you're practicing, are you actually practicing? If I just randomly hit the keys of a piano five, for, you know, for five hours a day, every day for the next 20 years, I'm not going to be able to play music, right? Okay, so an element of practicing is, is consistency that has an element of, co of correcting, right? That you're, you're actually doing the thing properly, regularly, right? So here's the thing, when you're a young doctor and you're reading EKGs, you read them, um, you get feedback either from the people training you or from the patients as to whether you read it wrong or incorrectly, right? What happens if you've been a cardiologist for 40 years? No one gives you feedback. No one gives you feedback. You rarely see the patient, right? And, so, whether you're and when, so you never find out whether you're making a mistake and what happens, you've actually stopped practicing. There's an element, okay? There's an element about emuna. What? It is scary. There's an element about emuna, which is that this sense, although it's intrinsic, that in order for, in order for us to actually have that sense in a, in a visceral enough way, in a tangible enough way that we can actually you know, eliminate things as being consistent or inconsistent with Armuna, there has to be an element of practice. So if you, going back to, you know, what I said about Eliyahu, Eliyahu said, either worship Hashem or worship Baal, but don't hop back and forth. Because if you're hopping back and forth, what's going to happen to the sense of Amuna? It's going to become very fuzzy. If you go, if you pursue something false and you really like make sure to like worship Baal properly and don't bring Hashem into it, what will happen? You'll ref you, your sense of emunah will also become very clear, just in, by virtue of the contrast. If you, if you seek out Hashem as He intends to be sought out, it'll also become very clear. But what if you're like hop around back and forth, little this, little, little that? Then you're not right. You don't because an intrinsic sense, in order for it to be tangible, in order for it to be conscious, needs needs the right um, kind of feedback to, to draw it out, to delineate it, to make it clear to a person. And so the word emunah also connotes the idea of consistent practice, meaning that you are working on actually living in a way that is consistent with the emunah, or, in the case where Valeau says, if you want to take this approach, I don't recommend it, diametrically inconsistent, diametrically opposed to the emunah. Either way will work to bring out the emunah and clarify it. But what won't work is if a person takes this haphazard approach, then like most intrinsic things, it kind of hovers in the background of your consciousness, mixing in with other stuff becomes very hard to pull out and isolate. Okay. So, um, now, does anyone know the word amen? Yeah. Do you know the word amen and amun are actually two versions of the same word? Yeah. So when you say amen, what are you saying? What are you declaring? Truth. 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 The I have a sense that what was now said is in fact, so let's give an example. If I make a bracha, okay, so I say, um, blessed are you, Hashem, our God, king of the universe, who created everything with his word. And you say, amen. What are you saying? That's right. true. Not that that's true, something deeper. I agree. Now, I have a sense that that's true. That's, that's what you're saying. Now, why should you say that? Do you have a sense that it's true? Ah, oh, so this goes back to what we were saying yesterday, is that yes, you do have a sense that it's true, but now is how vivid is that sense? That, how, how, how overt is that? How revealed is that? How tangible is that? That's a separate question. But if practice can make that more tangible, then perhaps by saying that you have that sense, you'll actually make yourself more aware that you do have that sense. So in fact, saying amen is not voicing to others that you have a sense of the truth. 
It's to actually make yourself say it so you have a sense of truth. And this, by the way, parallels a different idea, um, which is the idea of confession. In Torah, there's an idea of confession. Do you know that? No. One of the six hundred mitzvahs is to confess your sins. Before you die? Also before you die. But whenever you repent, you should confess your sins. Like, like, Yom Kippur, before you go to sleep at night. To yourself. Before you die. No, to God. Like, not to another person. (laughs) What? Yeah. Um, so, so here, here's the thing. It could be to another person. It depends on things. The thing that I think makes people very uncomfortable because we have this like red, red alert. Anything that sounds Christian. Um, which, by the way, just as, as a note, that's a that's that, that's something you want to be aware of because if, if your definition of Judaism is not Christianity, you, you know, so we Judaism also has resurrection of the dead and belief in God, reward and punishment, and you know. So we want to be careful, like, not to define everything that's Christian as not Jewish or vice versa. That being said, the idea that by confessing to another person, the other person can absolve you of your sins is not a Jewish idea. Uh, But confessing your sins is. Now, there are many reasons given. One of the reasons is, what happens if you say out loud what you did? That's right. You want to say that? You feel crappy, so you don't do it again. If you actually have to articulate, I did this, and then what the this is, it strangely makes it all the more real to you. Now, it's not like you didn't know before, but it has this, so speaking out loud has this effect of making things more tangible to us. So in a similar sense, making brachas or even answering umming to a bracha is, is supposed to have the effect of not verbalizing um, the amuna, but actually making the amuna more tangible. The amuna is already there, but by, but by speaking about it, that is a form of practice. Okay. Now, there are other things that can also affect amuna. Okay. Um, so Amunah, it's this, again, it's this, it's this intrinsic sense that, uh, that a godly being, meaning our souls, have for godliness. And it has this kind of primal quality, kind of like the way children, little children know where their parents are, the way Avram searched for God. It's, and it, and it, you, it first kind of resolves itself. We get clarity about it through experience of what, what lines up with it, what doesn't line up with it. Only later do you actually talk, can you actually talk about conceptualizing what it is you believe in, what it is you don't believe in. And maintaining it in a clear sense requires either, requires living life that's in accordance with it or, you know, living life not in accordance with it until the, the conflict, you know, rebounds and tears you apart. Yes? Um, yesterday you were talking about, like, the intrinsic sense of the truth of Torah and now you're saying the intrinsic sense of godliness. So it's one ah, of- which... Right. Because the thing is, what is it that makes the Torah true is that God Here, Here's the thing, going back to the years is, is, The Torah is true What that means is not that God in fact did give us the Torah But that Just like God is intrinsically present And valuable and important and meaningful That being of God is found in present where? In the Torah. So it's not so much that the Torah is an instruction of how you should live your life, although that's that as well, but that the Torah is the place where you encounter God, if you, if you know what you're experiencing. Okay? Um, to use this for another Zohar, the Zohar says that the Torah is God. So we say that the Torah is God's truth, we don't mean to say that God, it's true, it is the fact of the matter that God said that, but if you want to connect to God in a way for who God really is, the way to do that, the, the, the behaviors and um, thoughts and experiences that you can actually connect to God in are the ones that are the Torah. Whether that's reading the scripture, the actual letters of the Torah, practicing the mitzvahs, etc., etc. So the truth of God is the truth of the Torah. That, that's how it would be understood. And that, in kind of the way that, like, finding out who your mother is is not just figuring out her name and her birth date, but also, like, where does she live? Right? So you can go and see her. Right? You know? And then once you get to the address, which one of the bodies there is her body as opposed to someone else's body, right? Because it would be a little bit awkward if you rush up and hug some person and it turns out that they're not your mother. Right? So the idea is that the, the, the having a sense is that, for instance, when you light a Shabbos candle, 
um, when you when you um, light a Hanukkah candle, whatever the case is, that that is not just something. It's not just it is the case that God told you to do that, but you're actually coming close to God. Now, the 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 imuna part of you can sense that that in doing a mitzvah you're actually coming close to God. That God is present there. Whether your physical senses pick that up, probably not. Does your rational mind make sense of that? That varies. Are you how much are you consciously aware of that amuna? That tremendously varies. But it's the amuna that has a sense. So this is something that the Balshanta would teach a lot is that sometimes very, very simple and uneducated Jews have a very strong amuna sense. So they actually feel very connected to, to God when they make a bracha. Okay? I wanna just say a few more quick things about amuna before we have to end. One thing about amuna is that like most of our senses, we know that what we, how we um, treat ourselves affects our senses. So for instance, if you eat food that has lead contamination, right, it's going to mess with your mind. Don't do that, right? Lead, metal lead, makes you go crazy. If you have a lot of it, and if you have a little bit of it, it, make, it, it's, it slows all sorts of cognitive development things, including your ability to regulate your behavior. Yes. No, that's graphite. That's graphite. No, no. Like what? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, on the other hand, we also know that certain things are very important, right? So, for instance, if you if you don't get enough uh, um, if you don't get enough if you don't get enough iron, you're going to be tired, right? Okay. So in a similar sense, the godly part of us also has the same thing. And this is where, so I'm going to, so in general we can say Torah mitzvahs are like good for the soul and sins are bad for the soul. But more particularly, non-kosher food does to your amuna what lead does to your cognitive development. Did you say non-kosher? Non-kosher food does to amuna what lead does to your cognitive development. Which means if a person gets a lot of lead poisoning, do they cease to be a human being with a cognitive mind? No. But what happens to their cognitive mind? It goes a little wacky. It goes a little wacky. Yeah. Is it irreversible like lead? No. That's no. nice. It's not irreversible, but reversing it is not always easy. Yeah. Okay. But kosher, possible. it is possible. So kosher food, Kosher, so eating kosher food is very important for Muna. Not so much because eating kosher food is good for Muna, but eating non-kosher food is really bad for Muna. The, the contrast to that would be matzah on Pesach. Matzah on Pesach is really good for your Muna. It's like vitamins for your Muna. Well, that's... Yeah. Assuming, of course, the matzah is kosher. So... Okay, so while it is true, while it is true that in a general sense... While it is true that in a general sense, all mitzvahs are good for your amuna and all sins are bad for your amuna, and therefore, you know, more mitzvahs the better, the fewer sins the better. If one feels that they are struggling with amuna, the two things to focus on specifically would be making sure that they are not eating non-kosher food, or if they're eating kosher, keeping a higher standard of kosher, because just like we understand when it comes to physical health, that it's not a line healthy or not healthy things right so there are things that according to Allah there is room to be lenient about which means that they're not that detrimental but they still have a detrimental effect on a person's amuna so if a person's struggling with amuna an idea might be to keep a higher standard of kosher such as keeping Chal of Yisrael um, and then the other thing in terms of actually fortifying the amuna is eating matzah on Pesach specifically those two mitzvahs directly affect the amuna quality of the soul it's really hard to understand how what you eat affects your mood. Yeah. How do we know Well, that? That, do you understand how what you eat affects your mood? Yes. Okay, so why should it not affect your other parts of your psyche? All right, now there's a lot more to say. There's a lot more to say about Amuna. I'm going to focus, I'm just going to tell you one story, which I think highlights the importance of Amuna of this sense, and that this is not merely a means to solve a problem of how you make Judaism more personal, but actually, in a certain sense, is, is the most important part of Judaism. Um, the Talmud tells us that God gave us 613 mitzvahs, and the prophets came and reduced the number of mitzvahs. Did you know that? Now, when it says they reduced them, it doesn't mean that they said certain mitzvahs you don't have to keep. What it meant is that certain mitzvahs are more fundamental, 
And that if you master those, they're kind of like uh, all the other mitzvahs rest on them. So they, the way that the phrase they use is hamidim. They, they, they based all of the mitzvah 613 on a fewer, on a smaller subset. Um, so for instance, there was a prophet, Micha. Micha said that there are really only three. If you focus on these three mitzvahs, you have it all, which are loving kindness, doing justice, and walking modestly with God which are pretty vague, but okay. But then finally came the prophet Chabkuk, and he was the, um, he's, he reduced the entire Torah to one mitzvah. And if you master this mitzvah, then you have the whole Torah. Guess what that mitzvah was? Emunah. Now, oh, so the thing you realize is like, actually being aware of my Emunah and strengthening my Emunah and protecting my Emunah and like, Right, we start views <laughs> all the mitzvah, but what it does is it gives you a focal point for the Jude, for Judaism, that in a certain sense Judaism rests on and is geared towards Amuna. And so I want to tell you a story about the importance of Amuna, um, and then we'll end the class on that. The Arizal lived in Sfas, and in Sfas there were many many rabbis. The Arizal was a very famous kabbalist. He had prophecy, special person. And in Sfas, there was a rabbi, and the rabbi gave a, 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 a lecture, a speech, a drush on Shabbos um, about the importance of the mitzvah of the bread in the temple. There were 12 loaves of bread that were given. And he, he gave a speech about the importance of that mitzvah and how he no longer have it. And one of the people living in Sfas, he was a very simple Jew, um, but he excelled in his emuna. And he came home and told his wife that it was, it's very tragic that there's this special mitzvah of Hashem would have these 12 chalas every Shabbos and, and since the temple's been destroyed, don't have it anymore. And it's, it's just very tragic. It's sad. And so he said, well, you know, we could always just make a few extra chalas for Hashem. And his wife thought that was a great idea. And so every Friday she would make two extra chalas and he would bring the chalas to the shul. And Friday afternoon he would open up the Aaron Kodesh where the Torah scrolls are, he put the chalas there, and he would, you know, pray whatever prayer he that Hashem should accept the chalas in lieu of the fact that he doesn't get the chala from the temple. At least he should have this chala because his wife makes very good chala. You know, as far as chala goes, it's not the temple chala, but it's it's almost as good. And every week when they would open up the Aaron Kodesh Shabbos morning to read the Torah, the chalas would be gone, and he felt so good that because Hashem had accepted the chalas, and Hashem was now finally happy and. It was a simple Jew who lived in Sfas. It's not the Arizal. This happened when the Arizal was alive. And um, this went on week by week until one week he comes Friday afternoon to put the chalas in. And the rabbi who had given the speeches there, and he, he studying, he's doing something in the shul, he's studying, and he sees out of the corner of his eye this Jew go over the Aaron Kodesh, open up, put some chalas in the Aaron Kodesh. He says, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm, I'm giving Hashem's chalas for Shabbos. <laughs> he says, what? He says, yeah, I give Hashem's chalas for Shabbos. Why do you, what makes you think Hashem needs your chalas? Well, you said that there was, in the base of Migdash, there was the showbread and the lachem upon him. And, and, and what you think Hashem eats your chalas? Of course he eats my chalas. I've been putting it for weeks now since you gave that speech. And every week the chalas are gone. It's because Hashem takes the chalas. And the, um, the rabbi says, Hashem doesn't take your chalas. Let's ask the, 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 the shamish, the janitor of the shul. I'm sure he's the one taking the chalas. So he calls over the janitor and he says, have you been taking the chalas from the Aaron Kodesh? He says, well, yeah, I saw him put them there and I figured like, why should I make chalas if I can get two free chalas? We take them home every night and they're really good. We keep them for Shabbos Friday night. And the man is completely crushed now because he thought that he's offering this this special gift to Hashem, the chalas, and Hashem's taking them. And it turns out that he's just been putting chalas on Kodesh, and the, the gabbai, the shamash is taking them, and he's completely broken. And the rabbi thinks, okay, you know, now at least I've educated the simple people who don't know very much, and he moves on. Um, that Shabbos, the, if I remember correctly, this is Shabbos, but don't call me, it might have been after Shabbos. The Arizal comes to him and says, you should put your affairs in order. You're not going to live till next Shabbos. Because, the Arizal said this to the rabbi. It says, since the temple is destroyed, the unique pleasure that God gets from the lechem upon him, from the showbread in the temple, God has been lacking. And the first time that he actually had some sense of it was when this Jew brought those chalas out of his emuna. And you've now deprived Hashem of that. And so your time on this earth is over. So put your affairs in order because you are not going to live out till next Shabbos. It's very intense. And then he died. No!
That's the end of the story. The man died. That is the end of the story. The man died. The man died. That's the end of the story. So what we learn is don't somebody a bit. Oh, what? So what do we see here? What made putting... Now, putting chal in there on Kodesh is not a mitzvah, right? No. But what made it important to Hashem? That it was an act of importance to him. That thought he felt connected to him. Right. So there was the... Right. In other words, but what's very important, what's very important to think about is like this. His amunah was in what? What was his amunah in? That if I give chal, Hashem's going to eat the chal? No, that if he gives... Remember how the whole thing started? The rabbi gave up and gave a speech, which is why there's actually something interesting I want to explain. The rabbi gave up and gave a speech how Hashem, there's a special mitzvah to give Hashem chal in the base of Migdash, which is in fact true, right? Give Hashem 12 chals in the base of Migdash in the temple every week. And for thousand something years that hasn't happened, and that's a tragedy, right? Did he understand why Hashem needs chal? Who, the rabbi or the man? The man. No. The man, like zero, right? Did that prevent him from having a sense that it's true that Hashem needed the chal in the temple? And it really bothered, right? He sensed that Hashem has been deprived of this mitzvah for over a thousand years, really bothered him, right? Now, his actions based on that, were those, was it a mitzvah to bring the chal? Yes. That he brought and put in the, and put in the, it's not a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah. The thing, the, the challah is, she's like this. The challah in the temple, that's a mitzvah. That's godly. His challah that he brought, there's nothing godly about that. But what were his actions coming from? His actions were coming from his sense that God really derives pleasure from the challah in the temple and God doesn't have it. The thing that I can come up next best is my wife's challah. So what was God having so much delight from? From his wife's challah? Well, not a mitzvah, but from that a person was being driven with such a deep amunah in how God is really present in this mitzvah. Which means the thing that God was deriving pleasure from wasn't the challah that his wife was making, he was putting in the Aaron Kodesh. It was because this person on an ongoing basis was living with this, with, this, with this sense that God truly connects to us through the, through the bread in the temple. And his amunah in that mitzvah gave Hashem the same pleasure as if the mitzvah had been done. Now, which then raises the question, how do you even find out about this mitzvah? From the rabbi, right? So, 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 so why is the rabbi being punished so harshly? He's the one, that, and he's the one that, that brought this Jew to this awareness. And the answer is because when the rabbi gave this speech and he explained there's this mitzvah, did he have that same sense of truth? No. And how do we know that he had that, didn't have that same sense of truth? Because he was able to crush the guy so casually. In other words, it's not like if you, if you um, put, put bread in, in the Aaron Kodesh, it's a, it all of a sudden becomes a mitzvah. No. But if a person has real amunah, that real amunah, that forms the whole basis. And that can even stand in the, in, in, as some small measure as, as if you had done the mitzvah, even when the, when the mitzvah isn't available. And, what, what, and the reason for this is because it's at that point, that point of moon, where I have a sense that, that this is where God, that I have a sense of this is, that this is where God is, God is truly present. That actually forms the connection. Then on that, you can then build, making sure you're doing all the mitzvahs properly, etc., etc. Look, it's a general question why God feels that killing people is an appropriate punishment for things, but that's not the topic of the class. Okay. But taking for granted that God cleared the Torah thinks dying is an appropriate punishment for things, destroying someone else's amuna, or you're not really destroying it, but crushing it, you never destroy it. That God, because, because, because the, that, that God sees as something as, as the most, um, you know, as something worthy of death. Um, in fact, the worst crime in the Torah is actually is actually getting another Jew to 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 lose his amuna, not never lose it, but just you know crush it, destroy it, and and so what I want you to come away with is that the the amuna is not that I believe a particular principle or I think that something is factual, but is actually a direct sense that. There's a, there's a truth of who God is and that I have a sense of that. I can, I can, for lack of words, I can feel that firsthand for myself. 
not I see it with my eyes, not I understand it with my intellect, but there's this other sense called the muna. And if a person wants to strengthen that and take care of that um, and make that more tangible, they have other ways of doing that, um, like we mentioned a little bit. And when a person has that, then they have their own, it's in a small kind of way, their daily practice of Judaism is almost like their own standing at Mount Sinai themselves. And so it's not that they're receiving the truth from these institutions, they have it themselves. But that's not because, that, but that's accessing and bringing out something that's already intrinsic within a person. It's not something you create that wasn't there. Now, within that, there are many different approaches beyond that of how to then specifically strengthen that imuna. Um, and I've just given you a few things, but keeping kosher and eating matzah, those are big. Okay, next week we will move on from you know, the, the truth of the Torah and the Torah's integrity and talk more of some of the actual theological principles in the Torah itself. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Good show.